Collaboration and funding are essential to advancing rare disease therapies. This year, Global Genes will convene the inaugural Rare Partnering and Investor Forum. Join us for this day-long conference to catalyze innovation in therapeutics. The event, which will be held September 14th in Irvine, California, will include networking opportunities facilitated by EBD Group's one-to-one partnering platform, a compelling agenda, company presentations, and a pitch competition that will feature promising early-stage companies vying for a prize purse of valuable goods and services. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rare partnering. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Art Pappas, a former pharmaceutical executive turned venture capitalist, has spent more than 30 years working in and investing in drug companies. Among the areas he focuses on are rare disease drug developers. We spoke to Pappas about the changing climate for investment in rare disease companies, his thought process in evaluating potential investments, and at what point he considers exit strategies. Art, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about why the rare disease space is attractive to venture investors, the thought process you go through in deciding whether to make an investment, and evolving business models and investment strategies. Let's start with the issue of rare disease and orphan drugs. By definition, these are indications with small populations. What makes it an attractive space for a venture capitalist making investments? Well, I think the most um, important aspect of that is that we're able to more efficiently, um, that's both from a capital and a patient enrollment basis, um, develop a drug and therefore build essentially a company around that particular drug. Uh, it's, a, it's a smaller population, so being able to put the venture dollars to work in a capital-efficient way is what makes it a very attractive area. Well, there have been a number of themes that have been shaping the life sciences more broadly in recent years. The need for capital efficiency, as you've mentioned, having a a clear understanding of the mechanism of action of a drug and the push towards personalized medicine and the value of having an unmet medical need when going to the FDA. Do you see the rare disease space affecting the way venture investors view non-orphan opportunities? Uh, non-orphan opportunities, is that what you asked? Yeah. We're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in, the, in the area of non-orphan opportunities. Well, first of all, um, I can only speak for Pathos Ventures in this regard, but our investment thesis calls for us to be only investing in drugs that have a, uh, a kind of a proven or, a, or at least a path to, a mecha, to identifying the proper mechanism action, and therefore a regulatory path that makes it through the process. Uh, all of that is around the unmet medical. Uh, rare disease is just one important element of that, that strategy. Um, 
for those that are in the non-rare disease space, there are venture firms that will uh, pursue non-rare disease opportunities or seek kind of a larger population base. But I would assume many of them are also dealing with medical uh, and trying to approach things in that regard. Uh, we've come a long way from the time when we would be doing, at least from a venture dollar perspective, uh, minor improvements to the profile of the drug, thinking we'll get it approved and we'll get it reversed. So that, that's all moved by the wayside, the way the FDA has um, encouraged us to bring forward novel drugs and, uh, and areas of treatment. Well, when you think about what constitutes a worthwhile investment, are there essential elements you seek in identifying a company you're willing to back? Well, in our case, most of our investments are in therapeutics. So we're dealing with drugs, be they pharmaceuticals or biotechnology uh, products. Uh, we are uh, typically investing around a, a management team that understands the principles of drug discovery, drug development, and have a track record in that regard. Uh, we uh, don't necessarily invest in platforms but we will invest in a team that has uh, or is working toward a novel mechanism of action, has a plan to get a concept, and ultimately is able to show a regulatory path that would be satisfactory to the FDA. Is there an example or two you can walk us through of a, a recent investment and, and show us the decision-making process and one made it compelling for you? Sure. So one of our investments is in a company called Aura Biosciences in the ocular melanoma area. Very rare disease, but also uh, a huge medical need. Uh, the idea of working with the mechanism of action around this particular disease was something that was identified by the founder and as as to a novel approach and worked with key opinion leaders field of not just melanoma, but ocular melanoma, and therefore the use of the drug with what's used with a laser against the tumor was a, it was a concept that would allow proof of concept to be validated in both the animal models and ultimately in the preclinical models of IND. So those are the types of scenarios that we like. Would we have invested that kind of opportunity at the time that the company was really just doing concepts around tumor growth and the use of laser and the drug, I doubt it. But once it's received some validation, we've seen a, a growing number of non traditional sources of investment playing a bigger role in the rare disease space. This includes foundation grants, venture philanthropy, crowdfunding, and the growing activity of strategic investors. How should a rare disease company think about the landscape of potential investors and the cost and value of that investment? Well, we like to make sure that all of our entrepreneurs that are seeking venture dollars understand that that is going to be the most expensive capital that they're going to raise. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, it's capital that we, we believe will help them really grow the company, maybe accelerate the growth of the company, provide them more funds uh, that 
that they might, uh, a fund that they might need to be able to move the product over the tree for phase two, a phase two B, at least in our thesis. Uh, using these alternative sources, I think it's great. I think entrepreneurs should tap into them, particularly the foundations. Um, that only they get the insight from the foundation to the disease, but they can also uh, be of assistance. The foundation can be of assistance in enrolling patients or dealing with those or other constituents that may be involved in the care around the, the patient and the disease. So we encourage uh, our scientists to go after that as a first step, particularly if they don't have a mechanism of action with the concept so using the foundation, using certain government grants or other types of sponsored research is uh, beneficial to those companies and encourage them to take that on board. Venture capitalists vary in their appetite for risk. At what point are you willing to make an investment? So in our case, we're still we're, we're considered early stage life science investors. We typically are investing just prior to an IND, but uh, where there's clear mechanisms of action identified, hopefully it's novel and unique, and where there's a concept or a plan to take this concept. So we will invest at the preclinical level, and our exits are typically in phase two. One thing that in venture investors like to see are investments that have been de-risked. Are there ways that rare disease companies should think about de-risking their companies to make themselves more attractive? Well, uh, de-risking something this early is is sometimes difficult. Uh, the the main area are, are the are the animal studies. How we've been able to how those how those results come out. Uh, other ways to de-risk might be the discussion that may be had with the regulatory body, uh, like the FDA, figure out what would they like to see specifically. Now that's not complete de-risk, but at least put together a plan that we as investors might understand is something that may be valid. We can get the components in place and this regulatory body will perceive it uh, not better than before. How do you think about the modality of a therapy and the complexity of manufacturing it and, and delivery that goes with that in terms of evaluating potential investments? Well, it's part of our evaluation that it isn't the primary driver unless it's got a series of, uh, of steps that we just need to be aware of. The main thing for us is to know that the CMC, uh, the, the drugs manufactured for the purpose of the regulatory trial, uh, is, is, has an approach at the supply uh, chain that would make sense for the regulatory process. Uh, the refinements to CMC as we move forward to large-scale manufacturing. But that first step is the area that we're most uh, we're most interested in, particularly in the early stage investments. And does that mean you're open to anything in terms of small molecule biologics, gene therapy? We are open to all those, even though our preference is still small molecule. Uh, we're currently evaluating gene therapy. We have not weighed in a major way with gene therapy, uh, but uh, we do like small molecules. Uh, and uh, to the point you made earlier regarding personalized medicine, biomarkers, and genetic profiles associated to the therapeutic, be it large or small, uh, we have interest in and try to see if the 
programs that we do invest in have those associated with them. What, what about in terms of business models? How, how do you see these evolving given the small cell staff needed for rare disease therapies? Are you more likely to see companies commercialize products on their own, or do you think licensing and acquisitions are the way to realize value? I think you can go both ways. Um, uh, you know, one of the challenges I think rare disease, the ultra-rare disease companies have is their trials may be absorbing all the patients that are making up the market. Um, and enrollment could be a, can be a challenge in that regard, but once you've got the enrollment, you may have satisfied the market. Um, however, if there is a, a, a targeted market uh, to be able to use a specialized sales force uh, is, a, is a way to commercialize yourself. Uh, if anything, it has to be part of the planning to make it even attractive for a buyer down the road. They would want to see how you view yourselves or envisioning the, uh, uh, the, the commercial element here. And one, one of those approaches is to be able to do it through your own sales force. You know, it's interesting for, for some rare diseases where there haven't been available therapies, there's often not a good sense of what the actual patient population is. Doctors may not be familiar with the disease. There may not even be patient groups focused on it. In, in making an evaluation on a, a potential investment, do you look at that landscape at all to see you know, how clear a patient community there is, how much support there is for it? how well diagnosed the disease is? Yes, it's all part of our due diligence process in evaluating whether we're going to be able to make money on our investment because that's ultimately in terms of the commercial element. In fact, when we made our investment in Ultragenics, one of our early Series A companies, there we were really backing a management team that had a proven drug thing. Uh, reputation and experience-based track record, and the idea there was for them to be able to pursue these targeted populations, but also know how to deal with all the constituents and ultimately the commercial commercial availability and success with the product. Well, in, investments end with an exit, but is that something you think about from the start? Do you need a clear exit strategy before you make an investment? We do. Um, I think most VCs would tell you they, they 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 certainly try to make sure their investment thesis has that built into it, so that when they go into the investment, they know how they're going to get out, either be it through a public route or through a sale. Um, what's why that's important is because we have to make sure we know what additional funding might be required at each step of the growth of the company, because if we don't do that and reserve our investment funds appropriately, we find ourselves being washed out, being kind of crammed down, or, being, or we lose our position. Art Pappas, Managing Partner of Pappas Capital. Art, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome, and thanks for uh, the interest in this area. It's important. If you'd like to meet Art Pappas and learn more about innovative investment strategies in the rare disease space, join Global Genes for the first annual Rare Partnering and Investor Forum September 14th in Irvine, California. For more information, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rare partnering. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, 
go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 